like to welcome everyone this afternoon to the 25th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. These calls are held every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time. My name is Scott Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia, and I serve as the host for these discussions. We are streaming on YouTube Live. A link to this discussion can be found at the Scott Knowles YouTube channel, or you can email me directly or find me on Twitter at US of Disaster. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics, and please do feel free to suggest yourself for one of the future COVID calls. You can also hear the COVID calls recorded as podcasts. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for the Slow Disaster Podcast. How do you expect COVID-19 to change American governance? I hope you will join me on Monday for a discussion of COVID-19 and government with Tom Berkland, Rob DeLeo, and Kristen Taylor. It's gonna be a great conversation with them. As of today, there are 2,214,861 cases of COVID-19 confirmed globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 2,127,873 cases yesterday. 683,786 of those cases are in the United States, up from 653,825 yesterday. There are now a total of 34,575 deaths reported in the United States, up from 30,998 yesterday. 5,906 of those cases are in New Orleans with 317 deaths reported by Johns Hopkins University. Today marks the 25th of the COVID calls. It is a milestone of sorts and we have already built an archive. Um, some of you have been listening, participating from the beginning. I know some are just tuning in today for the first time because of our wonderful guests that we have today. Um, but please do explore the archive and, and share it and use it. It's a resource for everyone in the research community. And I want to make a special plea now. If you are thinking of using COVID calls as an educational resource, uh, please do reach out to me directly. I'd like for this venue to support pedagogical goals. And with the help of my colleague, Bucky Stanton, we are starting now to develop a curriculum based on the COVID calls with readings, questions and other materials to support the things that are being learned in these calls. We are literally discovering and exploring and sharing knowledge and sharing solidarity in this disaster in real time. So I'm seeking your input on that. Please feel free to get in touch with me by email or Twitter, however you can reach me to uh, discuss pedagogy in these times and let us use the COVID calls as a resource for you. Let me introduce my guests today. I have three wonderful guests. Karen Gadbois is the first I'd like to introduce. She co-founded The Lens. She now covers New Orleans government issues and writes about land use. With television reporter Lee Zurich, she exposed widespread misuse of city recovery funds and led to guilty pleas in federal court. Her work attracted some of journalism's highest honors, including a Peabody Award, an Alfred I. DuPont Columbia Award, and a gold medal from investigative reporters and editors. And back in 2019, which may as well have been 10 years ago, Karen was kind enough to appear on a discussion at the annual 4S meeting 
um, in New Orleans where she uh, spoke to a room full of sociologists of science and historians and anthropologists about what it was like to write about disasters uh, in New Orleans. And um, it's remarkable to have her back here today and we might have a chance to talk about some of the issues that came up in that conversation. Andy Horowitz is assistant professor of history at Tulane University. His very much anticipated book, Katrina, A History, 1915 to 2015, is due out this summer with Harvard University Press. He also has another project underway on the emerging field of disaster studies in which he is a crucial player. His writing has appeared in the Journal of Southern History, Southern Cultures, Historical Reflections, the Journal of American History, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and op-eds, multiple, in The New York Times. My third guest, Dr. Beverly Wright, is an environmental justice scholar and advocate, an author, a civic leader and professor of sociology, and the founder and executive director of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. The center addresses environmental and health inequities along the Louisiana-Mississippi River chemical corridor of the Gulf Coast region. She is the author of numerous scholarly books and articles, some of which I have taught in my courses. She co-authored Race, Place, and the Environment after Hurricane Katrina, that came out with Westview Press, and The Wrong Complexion for Protection, How the Government Response Endangers African-American Communities from NYU Press. I'd like to thank my three guests and say hello and welcome you to COVID Calls today. Great to be here. Thank you. I want to remind people that you can get your questions in for this discussion. Please use the YouTube live chat function, or you can tweet them to me and just tag at US of Disaster. This is the fastest way to get a question in, and we'll work through your questions as we go. I know many people are tuning in here today to hear from our guests, so let's jump right into things. I'd like to start the way I have been starting. It's a question um, to all of you. Karen, I'm going to ask you first, um, how are how are you doing? And can you tell us a little bit about um, your own situation there in New Orleans, what it's been like for you these past weeks? Well, um, uh, we're doing fine. Um, and all the staff at the Lens is doing fine as well. Personally, I'm at home with um, my partner and a friend of ours who came to visit from Mexico City and was unable to go back home. So <laughs> he's here with us too. Um, we're staying out. We're doing. We're staying in and not going out, except for uh, food, <laughs> and uh, you know, happily monitoring um, the situation from afar, from inside the house. Beverly, what about you? Same question. How are things? Well, um, things are busy as ever. It, in some ways, reminds me of how busy we became after Katrina. Uh, the difference being that we're locked inside our own homes. And at that time, we were, we were locked outside of the city. So there was still lockouts, you know, in both situations. Um, because we do um, hazardous waste worker training as part of uh, one, uh, one of the biggest grants that we have, and we've been doing it for 25 years, through under the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, we find ourselves really busy because it is the agency that develops uh, health, occupational health and safety standards for workers and also is dealing directly now with coming up with curricula for communities uh, to learn how not to transmit the virus. So you can imagine what it's like. It's, it's, it's um, um, 
webinars and podcasts um, all day long, instructional things. So we are very busy. Um, people are very supportive of our work. So right now we're good and we're all working from home. Andy, same question to you. How are things at, how did things wind down with Tulane? How are you at home? Uh, Tulane closed around a little over a month ago and they sort of gave us a week break to get students home. We had a week off to, to get resettled and now everyone's been home for a little over a month. Um, you know, like, like everyone else, it's surreal. I have um, colleagues who have um, gotten sick and gotten better. I have colleagues who are still some quite ill right now. Um, students who are sick. Um, and much of this is, I say surreal because I know this all virtually. I haven't really left my front yard, uh, having gone too much farther than that, if I can help it. Uh, I live in Algiers, right across the Mississippi River from the French Quarter. And it seemed uh, particularly pleasant, except for, you know, maybe a little quieter, a little, few more ambulances than usual. Don't see too many people wearing masks when they're walking around. Um, so it just seems like sort of an early Sunday morning feeling all the time, if you were just looking. But uh, the knowledge of what's going on around us is deeply uh, horrifying. Well, thank you all for sharing just those snippets of your own, your own situation. I want to come to you, Beverly, first and ask a question. Uh, you know, you're the, the founder of the Deep South Center for Environmental Justice. And yesterday we had a conversation about Cancer Alley um, with uh, Ashley Rogers and Joy Banner from the Whitney Plantation and Sophie Kesiko, who's a journalist who wrote a piece uh, for Vice about, um, you know, the situation there in, in Reserve, Louisiana. I wanted to ask you first about the environmental justice implications of COVID-19. One of the things I've been worried about is that the pandemic is gonna shove everything else out of the way. It makes activism harder. It has seemingly enabled EPA to relax air quality standards. What are your thoughts on, on this in terms of thinking about two disasters simultaneously, the pandemic and the environmental assault that's every day in Southern Louisiana? Well, for me, um, the two are connected in ways, you know, that are extremely disturbing. We have been now for almost 30 years fighting for justice in the corridor and really all over the world where we have helped to develop environmental justice organizations. But the cry has always been that um, certain communities are disproportionately impacted by environmental pollutants. In an early study that I did, we, it was the first study to ever be done uh, using spatial uh, distance analysis. GIS is really popular now, but it wasn't then. And it basically, basically showing that in Louisiana, African Americans live closest to these facilities than anyone else. We were complaining at that time about, you know, health disparities, asthma rates, they even had whooping cough back then uh, about uh, 15 years ago, something that had long ago gone away. And then this Harvard study, you know, comes to light, basically telling us that COVID-19 almost hitches a ride, you know, with PM 2.5. And the end result is that uh, people who live near these facilities where, where we have uh, exposure to air pollution, specifically PM 2.5, have a higher death rate because of it. And 
when in in New Orleans, when they first showed the statistics for the city, and it showed that St. John Parish had the highest death rate for COVID, I was like, what in the world is going on? Why would this little town, you know, have such high rates? And then the Harvard study came out, which absolutely told us why. You know, they live in Cantor Alley, right across from polluting facilities with extreme exposure to PM 2.5 over long periods of time. So they fit the description that basically says you have a 15% higher mortality rate from COVID if you are exposed to PM 2.5. And so for me, uh, we now have another reason to fight for uh, a switch from fossil fuels, for example, to renewables, because it's killing us all. It may, it's killing uh, people who look like me faster, you know, uh, than it is other people, but it really is uh, a dirty business that's, that's hurting us. So the word to me is that this is not a separate fight. This is the same fight. And we can look forward to, as we look forward, or not happily, to more pandemics, we're being warned that this may be the new normal, where we will have other pandemics after this or the same one coming back, it means that we really need to pay more attention than what we have ever paid before to the connection between pollution and death. And now it also being related to pandemics. So the PM 2.5 is particulate matter. Particulate, I'm sorry, of yeah. A certain size. Particulate matter, and I tell people particulate matter are really very tiny particles that come from facilities when they burn or whatever they do, materials that float into the air. And they're so tiny, we breathe them in. And the smaller they are, to some extent, the more dangerous they are because they can go deeper and deeper into our lungs. So you take a virus like COVID-19, that's where it wants to go in your lungs and it just hitches a ride with the PM 2.5 and it makes it more of a more virile disease for those people who are exposed to it. On an ordinary day, getting the health support that they need in communities like Reserve, for example, is very di yeah. difficult. Yeah. And but now we have this sort of layered on top problem of getting testing, um, actually confirming the COVID nineteen diagnosis. Am I right in assuming that this is just exacerbating already an overdue stress on the health system? There, tell us a little bit about how people seek health care in those in those space in those EJ communities, environmental justice yeah, communities. Yeah. Well. For the most part, these communities would be considered rural. Many of them come to New Orleans. The most that they have are little small clinics. Those clinics don't offer much serious health care. To me, it's like going to an urgent care clinic where you know you go for a headache, but for anything really serious, it's difficult to get to get any assistance. It reminds me so much of Katrina because you know the same thing happened. The people who are least able to fight a flood or, or some disaster get it piled on to them uh, at a time when they are less able to, to overcome the, ex the, the conditions that they live with every day. So it's like a piling on effect, you know? Um, it's like, um, how do we get out of this? I have some ideas, and I think a lot of people may disagree with me, but I really believe that reparations is the only way, that we will never, ever be able to dig our way out of this mess that we're in 
where every disaster, every pandemic just piles on top of us and, we, and things get worse unless we do something about poverty and something to redress the harm that has been done to us and has really disabled us to be able to overcome economically, educationally, or whatever the systematic or structural racism is, is it has the roots are so deep. And I don't know how you overcome that without something, you know, really dramatic, uh, um, you know, to deal with it. And so I'm 72 years old and I'm talking about reparations and people are looking at me like, you know, old lady, you know about reparations. Yeah, because we've been yelling for reparations for 30 years. Mm -hmm. So for us, it's not new. It may be new to young, for young people, but it is, this is an old rebel still yelling for reparations. And I often tell my students, you have to remember that we are the only people who are legally enslaved by this government. Other people came on boats, others came across borders. We were brought here and legally enslaved. That's a whole different situation from most other ethnic groups in this country, except maybe the Native Americans, and they have their own story, if you know what I mean. So yeah. I don't see how we get out of this without something really drastic uh, happening to redress the harm that's been done to African Americans. Karen, it seems like the, the the lens is on fire. I mean, with the stories, I was just looking right before we got on the call, some of these stories, and I mean, the, the tie-in to the kinds of issues that Beverly is talking about, the sort of structural racism problems, mm -hmm. structural inequality problems. I mean, you have stories up right now about COVID-19 and incarcerated populations, ICE, the census, um, I just want to sort of get a sense from you what it's like, first of all, to edit a, a news organization from your home, but also what kind of stories are getting the greatest traction? What stories are you telling that the national media is not picking up? Take us inside the the newsroom. It looks a little quiet in your newsroom, but I know that that's, that, that's, a, that's not really the reality of it. I bet you have 50 browser tabs open right now. I do. I do. Um, we are fortunate in that uh, in January of this year, we're, very, we're a small newsroom. Uh, there are uh, six of us uh, at this point, six, maybe more, I have to count again, <laughs> because in January we decided we were going to um, forego an office and uh, put all our, our funding into content for the most part. Um, and so we all had been adapting to uh, working uh, remotely and therefore, you know, communicating through Slack. If it weren't for Slack, um, you know, if we had had to, if we had had to figure out our communication um, strategy at the same time that we were uh, beginning to report on this, it would have been, uh, it would have been much more difficult. Uh, we were, we, we have reported, we were fortunate we had, um, Nick Trassel's been doing our criminal justice reporting he was part-time. We immediately uh, brought him on full-time to uh, cover the prisons, and he's the first to write about Oakdale and the issues there. Um, he has developed some good relationships with um, folks. I, I sort of run the, the kind of um, tip line, so to speak. So every day I, I do receive emails from uh, families of the incarcerated, sometimes from folks who are incarcerated, as well as uh, families of homeless folks who are looking for their people. 
and parents um, of children who, you know, oftentimes people read an article in, in, in the lens and then think that we're the conduit to solve their problem. And in that we, we do um, try and do that as well. So we're, we're sort of running a bit of a, um, a society aid function as well as uh, mm -hmm. a news organization. You know, we're, we're uh, community funded, we're grant funded. Um, there's opportunities that have arisen and they came fast. And so we're constantly uh, have one um, other person in, in the business side, which is Ann Mueller. And she and I are constantly looking at opportunities so that we can increase capacity in terms of the news. We also added a um, healthcare reporter, which is something I've wanted for a really long time. Um, sort of address the issues that Beverly's talking about because when people say environmental here, um, they often think it means climate change, but environmental basically is everything. Um, mm -hmm. It impacts all of uh, our social uh, uh, landscape, so to speak. So we were fortunate we had a healthcare reporter who jumped in and said, we need to be talking about um, more than just this COVID issue as it relates to all our other um, other uh, issues we cover. So in terms of a newsroom, we are a, basically a Slack newsroom. And fortunately, I have uh, our editor, Charles Maldonado, who is uh, what I jokingly call him the Oracle. Charles uh, knows a lot. And if he doesn't know it, he figures it out real quick. Um, and so he's he's managing all the reporters and has a lot of facts, figures, and moving targets at all times. Mm -hmm. There's a, a continual issue with this. I guess any disaster it seems particularly acute with this one. People seeking information and trying to get factual information and trying to balance something we've seen with this disaster. Uh, public pronouncements which are contradictory. I know in your state, your senators may be saying one thing, your governor another thing, your mayor another thing. Does that put a, a lot of pressure on a news organization to somehow both just report what's, what's out there, but also to really give people who are reading your stories more than that, like analysis? How do you manage all of this flow of, of contradictory information from public officials? Well, I feel like our governor has done a decent job of, of straight talking as um, uh, some, some, some who are not in uh, our region believe that all the governors are Republicans and ours is not. Um, although I feel like he's, he's much a statesman in terms of making sure he doesn't uh, incite uh, the, pres the president's uh, uh, temper. Uh, and so I don't feel like we've had to deal with a tremendous amount of institutional um, misinformation. I think um, our state senators are, are a little bit uh, either absent from the daily dialogue here. Um, therefore, when they do sort of make their, their TV appearances and say things that are less than um, helpful, um, I don't think they're getting as big an audience as in in the state as they may get in, in the national. Uh, what what they're seeking is national attention, not not statewide attention. And I will note that Billy Nungesser, our lieutenant governor, did apologize um, for criticisms he had levied against uh, the mayor. Uh, a rare thing in uh, politics is to see an apology. 
I can't remember the last time I, I saw something like that. <laughs> yeah. Andy, let me ask you, you've got this book coming out about Katrina. So I know that thinking about COVID-19 in the context of Katrina has been on, on your mind. And I also know from knowing your work that you're careful to show that any disaster is not an event on itself, but it's somehow a summation of processes and decisions made long ago. I, you know, I can't help but think that COVID-19 is a pretty good reflection of that. Can you take us a little into your thinking about the connection between COVID-19 and Katrina and how you're thinking about those two? Yeah, and I should, I should probably say first that so much of what I know about uh, Louisiana or the world, I've learned from the three of you on this call. So um, I know more about what's going on in the city around me from the lens than from looking through my own eyes. Um, and so I'm inspired by something that Professor Wright was just saying, that this sort of comes, COVID arrives, the virus arrives on top, uh, a totally unequal landscape. And certainly, I guess I'd start here. You know, we call this a disaster. We imagine it as some kind of emergency, which then suggests that um, the people encountering it had some stable, normal status quo before that, that this interrupted. But for the people that we've spent the, our opening minutes talking about, people who are imprisoned, people who are suffering from toxic emissions all the time and in extraordinarily inhumane rates of cancer, for people who can't access health care on a regular day, this doesn't arrive to interrupt some normal, you know, course of life. This is just yet another assault in what is a seemingly relentless series of assaults. Um, so when I think about uh, COVID as an analog with Katrina, one thing is to say is that COVID arrives from people still reeling from an extended process that we've named Katrina. People are still broke from that. People are still uh, not stably housed. Our healthcare system is still a mess. All the things that, you know, all the broken things that we associate with Katrina, many of them are still broken. Um, so it's not that this is like that, it's that this is coming into that, into Katrina's world, I think is a way of thinking about it. Um, another thing, but, but on the analog, one, one thing I think that might be productive for us to think about is how, um, even the question of the name. We named this disaster Katrina, and that tricks a lot of people, not, not New Orleanians, but it tricks a lot of people from thinking that somehow the hurricane caused the problems that we now name Katrina. But in fact, many, you know, the, the hurricane didn't do much damage in New Orleans. It was a failed federal infrastructure. And it's the failed federal infrastructure that we're seeing is hurting so many people now. Uh, naming this thing COVID-19 or coronavirus as if that virus, as if the germs are somehow getting to us, when what we see is a completely inept response and a completely unfair American landscape for trying to address it. Who, who has to go to work? Who can stay home? Who can see a doctor? Who can't? Uh, all of those questions are not caused by the virus. These are not damages. This is not damage that's in your lungs. It's damage done to you by your neighbors and fellow citizens. So I think we should think carefully about uh, thinking about this as an acute emergency that comes out of nowhere as the virus is going to infect people and cause damage when in fact what we have is a whole history of inequality, structural inequality, um, into which comes a new variable that simply animates all of the old problems of, of long standing. Beverly, just let me... 
Yeah, okay, I'm gonna get both Karen and Beverly on this. Um, okay. Karen, go ahead, Karen. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was, just, I was just gonna say it's no surprise to us that there's a dysfunctional federal government and um, in terms of, of how they respond to disasters. Um, but I'm always hesitant to say that uh, taking it one step further, which is we don't need them, we do need them. I mean, I can, I can pick up trash on my street. I can't, you know, build a landfill, so to speak. I can't build mm -hmm. a levee. Um, I can't uh, make tests for COVID in my kitchen. Uh, we do need a federal response, but the, sh the shock that it's inadequate is uh, no, sh I would say, suggests it's not a shock to New Orleanians um, who waited and waited and waited and then, you know, went on their way and fixed what they could. So uh, the resonance between those two events is, is uh, I think, uh, deep here. The way in which it affects us is deep. Beverly, same question to you. I mean, Andy's talking about this problem of maybe the speed at which people think about disaster. Mm -hmm. And what you were saying earlier, the real issues we're going to be talking about are, they're hard issues. Americans don't like to talk about them much, frankly. Poverty, yeah. structural inequality. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm sure people must be asking you, what do you think about Katrina in this context? Is it even useful comparison? Does it take us away from talking about the more central questions? How do you think about that? Oh, well, I don't think that COVID takes us, takes us away at all from talking about racial inequality and, you know, economic inequality, health disparities. I don't. I, it, they are absolutely connected. The problem is that we don't seem to be able to deal with um, a, a multitude of things at one time. Take something to me that seems complicated, but it's necessary right now if you have um any disease anything that needs immediate attention at a hospital you're kind of in trouble it's very mm -hmm. difficult if you're going to have a heart attack this is not a good time to have it um you know because we don't seem to be able to deal with COVID and just regular everyday life for people so you take that regular everyday life form people with money, where we find an inverse relationship between being able to stay at home and income. So if you have a lot of money, the richer you are, the more likely you are able to work from home. The, the poorer you are, the less likely you are to be able to work from home. So that means you're out delivering groceries, all of the, the grunt work that puts you at higher risk. Well, the same thing is true, you know, now we see with, with hospital situations. If you uh, don't have any money, you're in trouble for certain. If you don't have hospitalization, you're in trouble. And you have to be a really, really special person with some kind of connections if you have a heart attack to be able to get the kind of help you need immediately. Example, I have friends who are doctors. So if something goes wrong, even now, I call that friend. I'm like, what do you think this is? Oh, let's call. Oh, you need to do this. We still have access that people without money don't have. <clears throat> and I, I say this always, until we really start working really hard to do for the least of us, the rest of us will not be safe. And that was proven with Katrina when you found out that 
the uptown folks had had um, representatives worked harder to protect them from the levee. So they they had a levee uh, built that they thought protected them, but it didn't because it was too much pressure on the one part that was built when the water came, it took that away too. So we're still looking at, we're so divided. And I think that this president will go down in history to me as being the most divisive president we have had. And maybe he hasn't been the most divisive um, in terms of policy, although I think that may be the case. I'd like to look at that. But certainly in verbally, you know, um, representing divisive kinds of public policy or opinions, he's at the top of it. And we find ourselves not being able to move forward on anything because of the divisiveness. Um, and so the book that Bob and I wrote, uh, this speaks to that gov the government's response. Um, the government's response, while it has always been inadequate, it has been less adequate for people of color, in particular, African-Americans. So we're always the, the last to get to the help. We looked at the Mississippi River Chemical Corridor where white people who had some political power were able to get the chemical companies to buy their homes and move further away from the companies while black people were left there to languish. The result being 80% of African-Americans living near uh, polluting facilities or TRI facilities as opposed to whites. So, you know, you try, try to figure that race just seems to uh, factor into everything that goes on in, as it relates to quality of life for uh, African-Americans in the Deep South. And of course, as you go out, the people of color, where their numbers go up, you see the same kind of thing happening. So. I, I tell people it's it's a problem with um, the soul of white people. You know, somehow those discussions need to be had. And I always tell people when they want to talk about race, I'm like, I don't need to be in this room. I'm not the one with the race problem. You know, when I move in, if, 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 if I move into a neighborhood and they're white people, I don't run because they're white. But as soon as we move in, they move out. We don't have the race problem. We believe in integration and all of these things. White people have the race problem. They are the people who need to be talking. And I say, stop bringing me in so you can feel better, you know, by having the one person in the room. The talk you need to have with your grandparents ought to be between you and your grandparents, not me. I don't need to be in the room. And those are the hard kinds of discussions that we have not had. We've not been able to have them. Uh, and so here we are. It's like we're all going to go down together. In the end, we'll all go down together. That's what people don't understand. The one thing that I will say is this, and because I tend to talk too long, but what has been just really exciting for me is to see the pollution levels go down the way that they have because we aren't moving around. And I would always tell my students, the earth does not need us. The earth doesn't need us for anything, but we need the earth. And if we continue to kill it, it will end up in a place where it cannot sustain us. We'll be gone, but the earth will still be here. And I think that we're seeing signs of that now. We're all, we're all being pushed inside. You know, what's happening could kill us all. It could absolutely kill us all at some point, but the earth will still be here. And when we're gone, guess what? 
The sky is clear, the stars are showing, the birds are chirping. They're not getting these diseases, just us. This could be a lesson for us in how we should move forward in dealing with the environment. people that you're listening to COVID Calls and we are talking to Beverly Wright and Karen Gedois and Andy Horowitz. Andy, uh, this terrain that Beverly has just been sketching out really, I think, is also lands on the desk of historians to think about the interconnections between race, the making of Louisiana, the making of New Orleans and disaster things that too often I think we have separated out and treated separately, historiographically, maybe. I, I don't know, I mean, can you help us think with that a little bit, how you approach telling these as interconnected stories, how the making of New Orleans is also about the making of disaster and the making of racial division? That's yeah. a huge question to throw at you, but I really, I wanna know what, how you think about it. How do we, it. yeah, I think I understand your questions. How do we tell it? true story about the history of the world. There you I'm go. <laughs> yeah. uh, so let, let me, let me be, tell you in 45 seconds. be on this side of the desk. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I figured it out. Um, but, but I think I can maybe move the conversation forward by saying that uh, it, it's often people's uh, instinct, scholars and, and everyone, to try to tease out these different strands, to put health disparities over here, or, you know, health over here, race over here, economics over here, can't tell you how many times I've been in a meeting about anything and I've, I've said something about how I see the world as a historian and someone complains that suddenly I'm political, as if politics is supposed to be in its own hermetically sealed box mm -hmm. from anything else. And of course, that's a lie about how the world works and it doesn't aid anybody. And what you have to do instead, the goal is always to see how these things fit together, both in the present and in the past. Um, and I think one of the things that is very challenging to do and unsettling for people is to explain how, uh, or to try to reckon with how sometimes the problems that we face are in fact products of our su successes. I, I thought about this a lot trying to figure out Katrina's history because in, in point of fact, one of the reasons um, that African-Americans were, the, the African-Americans who were exposed to floodwaters uh, when the levees broke were people who had in fact been able to move to the post-World War II sprawled city. These were people who didn't live in the most impoverished neighborhoods in the uh, state, but rather people who had realized that sort of American dream and lived in a single family house, a ranch house on slab. These were people who had to some degree succeeded. And yet, so it, it's not that it's some straight line to uh, disaster. Things can get better and get worse at the same time. So I've mentioned that now to say that, you know, we, it's uh, coronavirus, the COVID that we face is not just a product of a series, a litany of mistakes. We're seeing here uh, a brief of our connected world, how much we need each other. We want to be people who desperately want to be interacting all the time and be in large groups. And this is one of, you know, New Orleans, you know, so I'm, I guess where I'm trying to land here is at Mardi Gras and the um, terrible assertions that somehow New Orleans had done something illegitimate and foolish by gathering together for Mardi Gras, but 
our, you know, social celebrations are one of our great achievements and one of the city's great contributions to the world. And so we, and if, though that probably is responsible, we know that that is along with the inequalities, racial and economic inequalities that define the city, our um, sociability is one of the things that made the city uniquely vulnerable. And we have to reckon with the fact that sometimes the things that work really well for us then put us at special risk too. Um, so how do, we, how do we tell those stories? I think we just try to be honest with them. And similarly, we have to be honest to say, thinking about what Karen was saying before, that we know that the federal government is inadequate. It's very inadequate at doing certain things. It's inadequate at producing the tests that we desperately need, but it works with ruthless and devastating efficiency when it comes to propping up the social order. We saw our elected officials nearly, you know, blowing gaskets when they thought that somehow someone illegitimately might get too much money in their, in their benefit check. You know, that somehow they might be made somewhat less than miser miserable and impoverished, would totally upset the social order and the thing had to be shut down immediately and the rich got richer. So in some things that we do, the federal government is ruthlessly effective. It's only in certain key aspects of its activities that it fails and probably it fails by design. And we should be honest about that too. Um, that sort of takes us all over the place. If that's not the answer to the question, but it's the answer to some other questions. <laughs> no, I, but I think bringing those all into one frame is what we're trying to do. Mm -hmm. and to not somehow separate them out as as separate stories and i mean Karen, well, it, yeah yeah it's an interesting time when we're living in reality and metaphor at the same time mm -hmm. exactly yeah yeah I, I, karen can you can you say a little bit more about the challenge of that from i mean andy's talking about telling a history that may stretch over decades but i mean you have the challenge to actually sort of capture much more near-term term stories that also illustrate um, these kinds of phenomena that are happening. So when you're trying to, to reach your audience and, and have a, maybe an individual person's story somehow stand in for these larger conflicts and battles of longstanding, I don't know how you do that. Like, how do you even begin to think along those lines of, of, of having these these individual moments in time or days tell the broader story? Well, I mean, I will credit uh, Charles Manzanato, who's our editor, with being the one who's, who's really midwifing all those stories because mm -hmm. uh, I know there are a couple of reporters right now who today in our morning meeting were just becoming overwhelmed with the, with the amount of stories that are there to be told. Right. Um, not just, uh, uh, individual stories, but institutional stories that affect individuals. And so, you know, he, I know that Charles tries very hard and I think he's very successful at making sure that one, those stories are told um, from straight, a perspective of straight journalism. Like the, these are not uh, meant to be um, in any way sort of influencing policy but informing but but illuminating policy for instance the story we did about the uh n95 masks at the convention center and the cost um immediately after publishing within hours of publishing that where they were selling one vendor was selling them for 14 dollars they're usually you know 35 cents or something um the state did send out a press release to say oh we're, we're you know we're going to be looking into that 
you know, so we, tr you know, that's an important story because uh, the lens was founded on as a as a post Katrina corruption watchdog publication, mm -hmm. and I was just a person who had been affected in a flooded home in New Orleans and looked around and thought, what will this city look like? in a decade and started writing about demolitions specifically because the houses represented people um, and uh, found something that 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 our local newspaper had not had not had the capacity to report on uh, and so I feel that same way now we're where our goal is to report things that are not being reported elsewhere and to and to spend the very long time that it takes to report some of those uh, issues um, and so that's that's number one if it's being reported we're not chasing um, if it's a press conference probably not chasing you know we'll do a lot we'll do a live blog we'll do a live uh, tweet but we won't we won't chase uh, and so therefore we're you know everyone that works for us has the um, the luxury which it is a luxury in journalism now to spend time um, a lot of time on on the work they do, so that's that's a a, a primary uh, goal of of what we do. Be that as it may, I I am worried. I mean, particularly for for journalists and I mean healthcare professionals for sure. Anybody who's in the fight in the hospitals, I mean, what they're going through right now is um, unimaginable, I think, to most people. But also, people in the activist community, um, you know, the people that you're working with, Beverly, and that you're helping to organize, the scientists who support them and work with them, and the journalists whose job <coughs> is to try to make sense of all of this on a daily basis. I'm really worried. I mean, this is not a disaster. This is a process, and this is an unfold. I mean, we're in a two-year at least process here that are gonna have multiple phases of sheltering and unsheltering. How do you think about sustaining your work in the midst of this? I mean, it's on a blue sky day, it's well hard enough, but how, do you, how are you gonna sustain the funding streams, the work, the, the morale? I mean, I really worry about stress and trauma for people who are in these kind of very difficult uh, jobs. Beverly, can you react to that first? Well, um, I'd like to, I want, to, I will react to that, but there, it was just something that I was thinking about that I really want to say. Please do. Is, um, after Katrina, the um, concern was whether or not New Orleans could survive. Um, and we knew that it would survive, but it would be different. I don't think any of us ever dreamed that it would be quite this different in that New Orleans has survived with gentrification at warp speed, with the displacement of poor African-Americans being pushed out all the way to slide down because they can't afford the housing, uh, the price of rent and all of that. So New Orleans is changing. Uh, very For those of us who grew up in this city the way that I did and can trace my heritage back eight generations to free coloreds on one hand and slaves on the other, having that kind of history and seeing us pushed out to the extent that we've been pushed out is, is, is devastating. I'd see the same thing happen, happening with COVID-19. 
I mean, our old people are dying at rates that are just unbelievable. Um, I, I alone have a, at least 20 people that I know who have the virus and at least 10 who have died, including neighbors on my street, all, all, all elderly. And so I always say, it's just, for me, it seems so unfair. And I tell people, I say, do you know how hard it is to be African-American and live to be 85 or 82? And you try to do everything right, and then a damn virus takes you out, you know, with all the struggle you had to, to live that long. And I, I'm, I'm really angry about it. And then to discover that, you know, um, all the racist kinds of things that put you where you are in terms of where you live with COVID-19 and all the other, you know, disparities that exist had a lot to do with this. So we, you dealt, you were able to deal with the health disparities, but you couldn't beat COVID-19. Um, that, that is really distressing. But in terms of um, the people who you mentioned being able to survive, you know, that whole group, um, if you look at what the income stream is for many of them, the, 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 this is what happens. Those of us who have good uh, funding from foundations or who have been able to raise money will probably raise more money now because of COVID-19. The smaller groups who don't have much funding, some of them will be, get funding because of this and others will go by the wayside. I think that because of the work, the work that I do, I would do if I didn't have a dime. And that's the way it is for a lot of um, activists, scholars, and plain organizers and activists. They wouldn't stop because of this. In terms of mental health, that's always been an issue for activists and organizers, mental health and health period. We've lost an unbelievable number of organizers, you know, who did grassroots organizing, who didn't have health insurance at all, and who have passed away. So on, on that front, I don't see a lot changing um, for us. I just got off of an NIHS um, 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 webcast, and at the end of the webcast, they had a, um, what do you call it? a relaxing exercise for us. So it's something that's really recognized in the work we do, especially with foundations. They're always telling us, you know, you, we need to find a way to deal with mental health. So we're not the ones that, you sh we, that anybody should be worried about. You know, it is the people who um, have family members that are sick and dying at an unbelievable rate. Uh, they live in houses where there are two people to a room, maybe two in a bed. So, you know, how do you separate at that rate? Those are the people that I'm concerned about. I'm not at all concerned about us. I guess that's the best way to put it. Yeah, thank you for that. Karen, can I ask you about, about that? I mean, you have a lot of experience, you know, covering Katrina and, you know, now this, this story, how do you maintain the morale of the of the newsroom. How do you maintain the health of the of the newsroom in a in a situation like this? Well, I have a uh, mandatory Monday uh, morning mental health and physical health check in, which I do. Um, I have been uh, 
sort of mother henning by making cookies and driving to everyone's house once a week so I can look at their faces um, to make sure people are feeling, you know, stable. Um, I've, I try and contact their family members for some of, some of our staff who um, are alone and young. Uh, to make sure that you know the pan their their family feels like they can talk to me um, and uh, and remind uh, them and myself uh, as a friend of mine once said to me after Katrina Katrina is a is a closed loop and this is a closed loop this will not I'm 65 I fully um, imagine that I this will be uh, talked about until I die mm -hmm. This is a cataclysmic event that will um, uh, uh, subsume you. It will, it will consume you if you allow it to consume you. And it, at this point, we're in the stage where, yes, it is consumptive. Um, but it's also important to figure out what that, uh, that thing is. Beverly was saying earlier, she likes to look out the window at, the, at nature. Um, you know, we all have to figure out what is that thing uh, that, that sustains us. So. Uh, that that's you know I used to jokingly call um, life as a tour of duty, and that I that that <laughs> other things I other things I did is the tour of beauty, and I would try and look at something that was beautiful, create something that was beautiful, be someplace that was beautiful um, during the course of the day. I think that you know that was Instagram for me, <laughs> uh, a place of beauty. So that's you know that's more. Some folks find that in church, some folks find that in nature, some folks find that in literature or wherever, but um, that's, this, 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 will, this period will pass, mm -hmm. but the aftermath um, will be uh, God knows how long. Between, when you have this amount of money that is passing hands, that is passing hands right now, there's corruption, there's mismanagement there's all kinds of stuff that for journalists um and then again you know you, people are getting these these twelve hundred dollar checks i wouldn't i wouldn't uh, imagine that a year from now they're not, they're not going to be paying some some dues on that money yeah. if you understand what i'm saying Add it to there's, your taxes. there's the unintended consequence yeah my, whatever it may be yeah. you know my uh faculty members in my department are probably hearing you say that you deliver cookies to the to your staff house that they're gonna be wondering where I am on Monday morning. Uh, I'm gonna have to edit that part out yeah. Karen. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Andy there's been in both things that Beverly and and Karen have been talking about the impact of this disaster reaching very far into the future and with that in mind, I want to ask you a question about time, I guess, and, and disaster. New Orleans is a city, well, let's go back before Katrina. I mean, New Orleans is a city with a deeper history of public health crises, right? I mean, this is historically, I mean, for African-Americans, certainly I'm going back into slavery and throughout that period. Um, but I think it, there are pandemics that have swept through New Orleans throughout its history that have left a mark on the city, maybe harder to find. I don't know. Could you, could you tell us a little bit of that history, put it in a deeper context? Yeah, I mean, you know, we could have started by re remembering that um, before New Orleans acquired these lovely Nick the Crescent City or the city of the care forgot, uh, New Orleans was the necropolis of the South. 
And it was called that because of how many people would die in the 19th century and into the 20th century of yellow fever. Um, thousands in a summer, often. Uh, meaningful double-digit percentages of the population would die every summer, uh, or often enough that it was an expected feature of life here. And in fact, you know, the, the drainage system that fails us so poorly now, every time it rains, these bigger rains we've been having is a product of a progressive era impulse to try to drain the swamps that bred the mosquitoes that were causing those diseases. So there's a way in which you can tell the story of Katrina as a sort of, fa you know, failure of the, you know, long tail of that progressive era um, drive for city building. I, I wouldn't exactly want to call it that, but certainly the failure to maintain its ambitions is how I would describe it. And, you know, in thinking about the progressive era, one, one thing that one thing that happened then, and happened out of those public health campaigns at the turn of the 20th century, was the sense there were um, there were posters that were popular in parts of the South uh, that advocated the fly knows no color line, and the idea there was that there was no way to sort of uphold strict Jim Crow inequalities in the face of a public health crisis like yellow fever and malaria, because the mosquito, in the logic of this poster, would travel from the you know, unclean or un underserved black neighborhoods into the wealthier white neighborhoods. So the idea was that, and this was promulgated in part by African-American women, progressive women, who said, you, know, you have to provide public health infrastructure over here if you wanna have it for yourself. And that was something that New Orleanians learned maybe after Katrina, that there was no way to build a levee system that was only gonna protect just the wealthy white neighborhoods because when the water came into the bowl, it was going to flood everybody. This is true of government in general. This is true of the American state in general. And we're constantly rediscovering how the sort of white supremacist um, uh, antipathy for strong government services undermines security, even for the wealthy white supremacists themselves. So if we had a strong federal government right now, a strong federal response, wealthy white people would be better off too. It wouldn't just be serving, I'm thinking about what Karen was saying about you know, the illegitimacy of who's going to get these $1,200 checks. Well, you need everybody to be able to stay home to, in order to protect yourself and your kids. It doesn't, you know, you, you desperately want to, if you, it doesn't matter how much you dislike your neighbor, you, the public health interest is in making sure that they have what they need to be able to stay home. It's in your best interest. But uh, there's been a sort of white supremacist conservative rhetoric that's been rehearsed for generations now trying to teach people not to think that way and instead to think of themselves as in constant competition with their neighbors that undermines the whole system. So you get the underfunded levies that fail and collapse everything. You get the underfunded health system that fails and everybody gets hurt. Um, and so I think that when we tell the story of coronavirus, thinking about where to start and where to stop it, and returning to something I said before, we would be very unwise and delusional even to start with the story of a virus that came in from a wet market in China, which is where you know, Donald Trump would like us to start. And we might be better off starting it with uh, 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 intense commitment to not having healthcare for everybody. Th that might be the more accurate place to start in order to explain the disparities <laughs> that exist. That might be where I, would, my, where I would start the story. Or in the intense commitment to something called the economy, which we all should just be honest, is a complete make-believe fiction. I defy anyone to go out and encounter the economy on the street, go shake the economy's hand, go slap the economy across the face. It's not real. But we you know, have set this thing up like we have public health on one hand and the economy on the other, but public health is the thing that'll kill you. 
the economy, we make the money. We've decided that that's going to be the thing that we foreground. And that's because we have an intense ideological commitment to a certain kind of fiction. And we could start the story of coronavirus there too, with the desire not to simply spend the money that it will take to let people stay home, to let the virus go away. This is actually a rather easy problem to solve, but we refuse to do the things that would make it easy to solve. So now we, if the idea is that we're gonna beat the virus without spending any money and without providing universal health care, well, then we're back to trying to have strong levies for some people and weak ones for others, and the water's gonna fill the bowl either way. And that's, my, that's my take on this now. Yeah, well, thank you for putting that in that deeper context because we, we do find out in a disaster what the deeper commitments of the society are. And two of the ones that we, um, as Beverly, I think was telling us earlier, two of the ones we either had think we've gotten past in some places, or that we don't want to, we don't be reminded of our segregation and failure in the health system. And um, if a disaster, this disaster is revealing those as ongoing processes in American life, you know, that that's the real disaster. But this commitment to the vector, the commitment to the mosquito, or to the hurricane swirling in the Gulf, or to the wet market, that still rhetorically has so much power. And you can see it, you know, I would just add that you can see it pretty clearly in the rhetoric of people who say, um, you know, we, we, we need to provide uh, grants to businesses or we need to, or that coronavirus treatment should be free because people got it through no fault of their own. That's a phrase that we've been hearing from a lot of people, certainly Louisiana senators, no fault of their own, as if people get cancer through fault of their own. Right. You know, we have the sense that we're going to try to isolate this so that we can keep the rest of the system intact. You know, you're a lupus, you brought that on yourself, so you're gonna to have to cover that. But, but somehow this is different, this is illegitimate, because suddenly a certain segment of, you know, white middle and upper class people who come to think that American citizenship represents a promise to protect them from this kind of upset, they feel like they've been illegitimately harmed and they want to be returned to where they are before without upsetting their status in the broader social orders. They don't want anyone else to get theirs either. And now the stigma, right. So we're almost up on time. I wanna get a, just a quick um, final question to each of you that maybe each of you can, can briefly address if you care to. And it actually comes to this issue around memory. Um, I have been surprised and disappointed. I'm, a, I'm very interested in disaster memorials, the way we remember these moments in time. And you know, the failure to have a meaningful Katrina memorial to me, now I'm an outsider, so I know there are many other kinds of things that must be maybe much more informal, don't look like a big 9-11 memorial there in New Orleans, but um, memory and memorialization is important. It, it's important as a process to continue to provoke, I think, discussion of politics and not to just cover things over and say it's over. So I guess my question is really about how do you think COVID-19 will be remembered in New Orleans? And how should it be? How should it be remembered, do you think? Beverly, can I ask you that, that question first? I think we lost the audio there. Sorry, that was my fault. No, it's okay. I, I really, for me, I'm just gonna personalize this now and I shouldn't. 
but I just feel that I want to. COVID-19 for me is the frosting on the cake for Donald Trump's failure to this country, uh, and especially to poor people and people of color, his complete lack of empathy or ability to deal with um, something as big as this. I think it falls squarely on, on, on him. And I, I really believe that the, the COVID-19 will be remembered for the changes in our lifestyle that are being forced upon us because of it. I, I also believe that if, this, if we do this right, the lessons that we can learn from it in terms of the environment and environmental health, certainly in my community, will be memorable. All of the unbelievable changes that we saw, like fish in the water in Venice and seeing stars in China for the first time, for the people that I work with, mm. uh, if not, this is proof that our push to a reduction in emissions uh, can not only save the life of the planet, but can improve the health of most of the people on this earth. So for me, it's a bad thing that in, in really in the end may turn out to be uh, for our good. And I think that it's also showing us, as one uh, foreign leader said, I think it was Norwegian, that you taught us what to do when there is a pandemic, but you're not following it. And hopefully those words mean, since this is coming again, we can learn from the mistakes that were made or the fact that, that running, a, running a government is more than making a dollar. And I think that's where, you know, where we are right now. The fight is between the greedy and the needy, as the kids would say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because a lot of what we're doing is just all about money. Um, and it shouldn't be. Karen, what do you think? The, the, the memory of COVID-19, how is that going to stick in New Orleans? Well, I was, um, you know, when before in the early days when, when deaths were being first reported and you had a, a sneaky suspicion that the numbers for African-Americans were higher than uh, for others. Um, and then the, uh, you know, then they, because early days they really weren't announcing uh, details. And, uh, and then the, the governor announced there would be a task force. And I just thought to myself, you know, please God, no more task force. I mean, if it's a big mystery to you why this is happening, yeah. um, then shame on you for it being such a big mystery. And, uh, you know, as Beverly had mentioned earlier about reparations, you know, perhaps the reparations could come in the form of access to a livable wage, to health care, that those, you know, I, I, I have a, um, I, I have a, weekend place in Mississippi. It's a big old schoolhouse that had been abandoned in a town that's crumbling like most towns in Mississippi and most rural places in the South. And, uh, you know, when I got in that place, I thought to myself, this is the legacy um, of racism where towns self-annihilated rather than create opportunities for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of the city of New Orleans needs to be a place that creates opportunity for everyone. And uh, that's, that's the monument I'd like to see from this event. We had it with um, 
Katrina and now we're having it again. And if you need a task force to figure out why we have so many folks dying, then you're not paying attention and you shouldn't be in a position of power. So Andy, we have a, a clear sky memorial of a moment in time when we actually can see the stars at night. That's also mm -hmm. true here in New Jersey. It's kind of amazing. Uh, we have a, a, a no more task forces uh, monument <laughs> uh, in front of Karen's house. What are you going to build? Uh, I mean, the only mon to my mind, the only monument worth building to COVID is universal healthcare. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if we somehow get through this as a society without understanding that that's the central thing that is going, one of the central things that went wrong here, then we have just so deluded ourselves that we shouldn't call it over. You know, I, I think, um, I think that, that's, where, that's where I am, universal healthcare. Andy Horowitz, Karen Gedbois, and Beverly Wright, thank you so much for spending this hour on COVID calls. What an amazing conversation. And I have a feeling we may, by the end of the summer, need to come back to you for some updates on all the work that you've been doing. Um, thank you for all you're doing. Thanks, and, Scott. Um, thank hopefully you. Hopefully we'll be here late in the summer, Scott. That's the, uh, <laughs> that's the real prayer we all need to make. Everybody, yeah. please come back to check out COVID Calls Monday at 5 o'clock when we talk about government and maybe the chance that COVID-19 will reform or cause reforms in our government, uh, possible, um, and what those might look like with Tom Berkland, Rob DeLeo, and Kristen Taylor. Everybody stay healthy, and thank you. We'll see you next time.